invite you all to stand at this time. We're going to be looking in Psalm 4 at a message I call Enlarged Through Distress. Psalm 4, verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. How long? <clears throat> oh, have mercy upon me and hear my prayer, O you sons of men. How long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. And may God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. In 1955, Dr. John A. Schindler produced an article titled, The Treatment of Emotionally Induced Illness in General Medical Practice. Uh, the byline of that article called this Emotionally Induced Illness the number one problem in contemporary medicine. He suggested that as much as 70% of the medical problems a general practitioner saw over the course of any given uh, period of time, 70%, he suggested, uh, were dealing with this malady. Of course, we don't call it emotionally induced illness. We've got another name for it. We call it stress. Stress. And uh, all the things that go along with it, things like hypertension and a lot of other things, we know a lot about what stress does to the human body and how much it affects us in so many different ways. Now, when the psalmist says that the Lord enlarged me through my distress, uh, he wasn't talking about the freshman 15. Sorry, that's not what it was. Not, uh, uh, although weight gain is indeed one of the things that stress does to us, uh, and, and now it doesn't do it all by itself. As far as I can determine, stress itself has no calories. It has none. Uh, however, chocolate chip cookie dough does. <laughs> and I'm not sure what it is about being in a stressful situation that makes Dairy Queen sound like such a wonderful place to go, but it does. There's some connection there. Uh, but that's not what the psalmist was talking about when he says, Thou hast enlarged me. Uh, through my distress. Uh, instead, he is talking about how God relieves us. And uh, in fact, the modern translations have it that way. Look at this in Psalm 4 and 1 from the New King James. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And we can really, if we think about it, we can understand the connection between being enlarged and being relieved. What he is talking about is how that God, through our distresses, makes us a bigger person. Instead of that person who is just all uh, bummed out and all stressed out and all disturbed, uh, God has given us then the ability to deal with this. He's made us a, a bigger person, a bigger man, a bigger woman, a better person through my distress. We'd be a lot more comfortable if God had said, God has enlarged me through my hobbies. Or He has enlarged me through my fun and delights. God has enlarged me through my distresses. And that's going to be our focus today in today's message. Psalm 4 has often been associated with Psalm 3, and rightly so. 
because the content is similar. Uh, Psalm 3 speaks of how we begin our day in prayer to God. Psalm 3 and 5, I laid me down and slept. I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Uh, Psalm 3 then uh, describes how the psalmist began a day thinking about God, talking to God, calling out to God. And uh, he even asked for God to get up. I hate God, if I'm going to get up, I want you up too. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O oh my God. Psalm 4, by contrast, then speaks of how we end a day. To, in prayer to God before we go to sleep. Psalm 4 and 4, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, he says in verse 8, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Well, Psalm 3 talks about how we face a day, uh, a day with uh, disturbing possibilities. We begin that day then by crying out to God. Psalm 4 then talks about how we end it, how we end a disturbing, difficult day. I talked to you some last week about how that there's a time in life when we're mostly stress-free and we enjoy those carefree, simplest, care, simple, careless days of childhood. For the most part, we don't even remember them. Uh, my childhood memories usually are built around times of trouble and trauma. You know, I remember when I broke my arm in the fifth grade. I remember the time that I discovered that I was allergic to shellfish. I remember uh, some of the times that I got in trouble. Some of them just stand out in my mind. Uh, uh, and I'm not going to go into all of those this morning, but I uh, did get into some, and rightly so. I, uh, you know, it just uh, those things stand out in your mind. You remember uh, the traumatic things. You also remember some very, very good things from your childhood, but for the most part, those were stress-free, carefree days. Uh, then puberty comes. The teenage life hits with all of its changes and difficulties, and suddenly your stress level goes through the roof. Unfortunately, you may try to talk to older people about them, and they will tell you really quickly, you don't have any problems. Well, you want to talk about problems? Let me tell you about problems. You don't know anything about trouble yet. I'm not going to do that to you this morning, young people, because let me tell you something, your stress is very real. It's very real. And I'd remind all of us older folks this morning uh, that uh, stress is not something that plays the comparison game. Just because their stress may not seem to be very much to you doesn't mean it's not very real to them. And if you want to know how real it is, uh, just check out the statistics on teen suicide in America today. It's very, very real. What stresses you out may not stress me out. What disturbs you may not disturb me. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's not very, very real. And just because it's not as significant as it's going to be in the future doesn't mean that it's not very real. One thing I can say very comfortably this morning, every day brings its own degree of difficulty. Every day. How do I know that? Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
Now, along with every day's trouble comes something that Jeremiah the prophet spoke of in Lamentations chapter 3. He said, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Every day, you see, has its own trouble. But every day has its own measure of the mercy and compassion and grace of God. Your problem is mine is that we are too inclined to spend today's grace on tomorrow's trouble. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. All that means is that we don't have then what we need, the supply that God has given us, to deal with today's trouble. That's why Jesus said, take it, as we like to say, one day at a time. Every day has its own measure of trouble, and some of them are really, really tough. There are times when trouble descends on us without warning. We start out a day with a routine in mind, exactly we've got a got a mind in our mind exactly what's going to happen, or for the most part, what is going to happen. We have plans of what we're going to do, uh, but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we can be hit by something that just changes our life. Uh, we get sick, or somebody we love gets sick. We have an accident, or somebody we love has one. We get that message of finality that we all dread and we can do nothing about because someone we love or something we love has died. Our life has changed. We didn't expect it. We did not see it coming. All kinds of things can happen. You may be attacked or set upon by thieves or any one of a thousand other things can happen to us in any given day. What I'm telling you is that a lot of our trouble in life that we face, a lot of the difficulties we face in life come in ways that are totally unanticipated. We didn't have any idea it was coming, no clue that it was going to happen, but suddenly it's there and our life has changed. Trouble has come. Jesus said it's sufficient unto the day. There's a trouble thereof. And some days are really, really, really difficult. Completely unanticipated. That's not what the psalmist is talking about, I don't think, in Psalm 3 and 4. It's not those things that, that come upon us that are unanticipated. Because, especially in Psalm 4, he tells us, uh, the source of his difficulty. What is it that is giving him stress? What is it that's causing the stress in his life? Whatever it was, it was there when he got up. He knew it was coming. And after he had gone through the day, it was still right there. A lot of our bad days, you see, come because of people who are in our life. And that's exactly what the psalmist is going to talk about. They come because of what other people do or what they try to do, or what they say. It's by their actions and by their attitudes. It is somebody that we are around all the time. We know they're there, and they're tough for us to deal with. A lot of the things that they're doing, we know they're doing deliberately. We might think, well, you know, David was the king. <laughs> he could just have him transferred. No, he couldn't. No, he couldn't. I'll grant you that he dealt with Uriah the Hittite. And he regretted that to the day he died. But even though he was the king, that's what I want you to see, 
he couldn't just deal with everybody in his life. People were too well connected. People were too close to him. A lot of the people maybe that he was having the most trouble with were of his own household, of his own family. And he couldn't just uh, wave something and, and make it all go away. He was the king. But there they were every day. And they knew that it was going to be tough. Psalm 3 and 4 then show us how to deal with that. How to begin a day in prayer when you know that you're going to have to deal with people and you know that they're going to cause you a problem. How to end a day after you've dealt with them all day. How do you deal with it? Folks, you'll see it as I go along. I, I'm not making this up. I, I didn't dream it up for myself. It's all right here in the text. How do you close out a tough day? How do you begin what you know is going to be a tough day? I wish that I had time to preach all of Psalm 3 and 4 to you this morning. I don't. I'll have to save Psalm 3 for another day. They are very similar. And uh, uh, so you can look at them for yourself. But the principles that I'll talk about really can be found in both of these psalms. We're going to just focus in on Psalm 4. How do you finish up a day, a tough day, dealing with people and stress? It shouldn't surprise us that the beginning of it is that David talked to God about people. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distresses. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. We might not know all the specifics of what was going on, but we can see the description that he's given in the passage. The sons of men, the people, refer to these people in his life that are at the center of his difficulty. And he tells us, gives us some insight into exactly what they were doing that was pushing his stress through the roof. First of all, he says, they turned my glory into shame. These are people who never saw anything good that David did. Uh, everything that he did, they had the ability then to take it and turn it into something bad, something terrible, something awful. Didn't matter how good it was. I mean, David as a king might be very charitable towards somebody, but they'd turn it into something bad. Oh, he's just doing that to, so he can get them in their debt. Oh, he's just doing that so somebody will say how great he is. Oh, he doesn't mean that. He's not really that way. And they constantly then worked uh, to turn his glory into shame. And of course, uh, the most frequent target in these things are emotives because nobody can see what's on the inside. Nobody knows why you do what you do. Nobody knows why I do what we do. And our motives then are the easiest thing that people can impugn. And that's exactly what they were doing with David. I mean, even when his actions were good, no matter how good they were, they had a way of turning everything into bad. How long, O oh you sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? Now, in today's culture, we deal with this in an even greater way than David did because social media makes it so easy for everybody to have a platform and to spread whatever it is, their displeasure around. And they can even do it anonymously while hiding behind their keyboard. It's tough 
though when you have to deal with people like this on a daily basis who no matter what you do, it's not good enough. No matter what you do, it's not right. No matter what you do or how you do it, you did it the wrong way, you did it for the wrong reason, they are a constant critic and it is unrelenting. Now we may think, well, you know, I could just move. You can't always move and get away from this. It's tough. When you get up every day knowing that you have somebody like this in your life to deal with. And after you dealt with them all day, when you lay down at night, <laughs> there it is, right there in your head and in your heart. How do you deal with it? David talked to God about it. And he talked to God about them. The second thing that he tells us then they were doing is that they love worthlessness and seek falsehood. This is the word vanity. It is the word emptiness or worthlessness. Uh, people who love worthlessness in the Bible were people who didn't do anything. Uh, they loved worthlessness. That is, they weren't productive. They weren't ever doing anything constructive. The only thing they worked was their mouth. And uh, they worked it very effectively. But uh, uh, that was it. They loved worthlessness, and they seek falsehood. That is, that they, uh, they don't care whether what they're saying is the truth or not. Uh, I tell you what, you put those three things together. Uh, they turn my glory into shame. They turn everything good that I ever do into something bad. They don't ever do anything constructive or helpful themselves, but they are running down everything that I do, and they don't tell the truth. Uh, Mark Twain was fond of saying that a lie can run around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. A lie can make several laps around the world these days. While the, and unfortunately, the truth seldom undoes the, undo, undoes the damage that the lies have caused. This is what David was dealing with. It's right there in the text. He spent his day dealing with these people. And when he lays down at night then, the first thing he does is he takes them to God. You see, David understood that God knew what was happening. God was watching. God saw it. God understood it better than he did. It's not like it was a surprise to them, although sometimes we want to pray to God like it is. Now, God, you might not be aware of this. You ever pray, pray, pray that way? God, you might not have noticed this. Oh, God was watching. He knew. David knew that. And we need to remind ourselves of that as well. God was watching. God sees what's going on. God knows what's being done. And so when David talks to God, he very quickly reminds himself, I think. But also in his mind, in a way, he's reminding these other folks. I'm going to talk to God about this. And God will listen. <laughs> your boss may not listen, but your God will. Your God will. I'm going to talk to God, and God will listen. God knows better than we do. So David talks to the Lord about people. Then the second thing we see in the psalm is that David talks to his own heart. Verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. 
Again, the old King James had this word as awe, which for us almost always speaks of worshipful astonishment or amazement. When we stand in awe, we think of that in a good way. Uh, but it wasn't always that way in Hebrew. It certainly wasn't all that way back in the 1600s when King James used the word awe. There was a negative connotation to awe, to stand in awe and anger. And you know that feeling. I can't believe that they've done this. I can't believe they've done it again. I can't believe they went there to stand in amazement and awe, but also in anger. And that's why the modern translations have it that way. That and because this word is, that verse is actually quoted in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. You'll notice that's in quotation marks. That's because it is a quotation of Psalm 4 and 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. David knew that was a battle that he had to fight, and he had to fight it immediately. And so as he lay down on his bed, he said to his own heart, Be angry and do not sin. There's a connection between anger, especially unresolved anger, that anger that we don't do anything about, that we let linger in our life, that gives place to the devil and encourages us to sin. A lot of times if we're not careful, when we get angry, we'll write ourselves a license to do something uh, that we shouldn't be doing. Some area that we've struggled with, you know, uh, uh, some habitual sin that we tend to go to. When we're angry, we tend to write ourselves out a blank check and say, it's okay, I'll, I'll just indulge this a little bit to make me feel better. We may not say that to ourselves, but that's what our heart tells us. That's why that the Bible tells us, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath or give place to the devil. The word selah in the text is one, uh, it is like our quarter rest or half rest or a whole rest that you see written out in a piece of music. Uh, when you find rest written down in a piece of music, you don't say rest when you get to that. Uh, we don't sing rest when we're singing a song. Uh, when we see a rest in a piece of music, what do you do? So when you see selah in the Psalms, what that is telling you to do is rest and reflect. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate with your own heart on your bed and be still. Be still. Think of that. Think on that for a moment, David says. So he calls his heart to meditation or consideration to think about these things. And it might seem to us to be counterproductive. Because what we want to do is stop thinking about this. We're, the wheels of our brain are just running and running and running. We want to get the wheels to stop so we can rest and go to sleep. But instead, David calls on us to meditate on these things. And he does so in a way in verse 5 so that we can offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. You see, when we meditate on these things... We give ourselves then the opportunity to ask that all-important question, am I in the right here? Have I done what I should have done? Have I done it right? Have I done something that's wrong? Is there something in this God that I need to correct? Is some of this maybe my fault? Am I in the wrong, God, or if I'm in the right? And if we can look at it and say, you know, I did what was right, 
then we can do exactly what the psalmist says. I can keep doing what is right, offer the sacrifice of righteousness. You see, be angry, don't sin. That is, don't let these people draw you into their sin. Just because they've sinned against you don't mean you can sin back. That's what we want. <laughs> hey, don't look at me that way. I know it's what we want. <laughs> instead, we keep doing what's right. And then he tells us, you trust in the Lord. That is, you trust God to make it right. If I'm in the right, if I've done something wrong, of course the Bible tells us what to do. We need to confess that to God. We might need to deal with that in some other way with some other person. Do what we can to make it right. But this is what he calls on us to do as we meditate then within our own heart over this thing. We're not just pouring over it and throwing fuel on the fire. But we give it careful consideration that I get through the day with a good heart that I do what was right did I let them draw me into their sin or did I respond in a way that honors God and if I can say that then I can trust in God so he talked to God he talked to his heart and then lastly he talks to God about his heart so he talked to God about his people uh, he talked to his own. He talked uh, to his own heart, and then he talks to God about his heart. Verse six: There are many who say, "Who will show us any good?" Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Many were those who say, who will show us any good? David was very well aware of his own failures and sins. He knew he had messed up. He knew he had sinned. He was a mortal man, a human being, as are all of us. The Bible says it, so I can say it. There's not a just man or woman upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That means that all of us have messed up. And if we are honest with ourselves and honest with God, then all of us have done plenty over the course of our life to deserve the judgment of God. And David was looking at all that and he said, Lord, there's a lot of folks out there that say you can't possibly ever be good to me. And we can all say this morning, thank God for your grace. And thank God for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you're merciful to me and that you continue to be kind to me. God, I love you. And I know you love me. God, I want to live for you. And you know that I want to live for you. But, oh, God, you know I failed. But, God, you've been merciful. You've been compassionate. You've continued to shine on me and showed me your grace. David, you see, knew the, sin, the joy of sins forgiven. Psalm 32 and 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're not lying to God, acting like we're good when we're not. We confess our sin, and we find out then that he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And while there were many who said, well, he doesn't deserve any goodness. He doesn't deserve for God to give him anything good. 
Look at the way that he's sinned. Look at the way he's lived his life. And David would acknowledge it. Yes, I've sinned. But David could also say, blessed is a man whose sin is forgiven. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's a greater blessing, he said, <laughs> than all those people who have uh, barns full of grain and who have storehouses full of wine. And they look at their full barns and their full storehouses and, oh, it gives them joy. But David said, you know what gives me joy? is knowing that God has forgiven me of my sins, knowing that I'm right with him. I have experienced then the blessing of sins that were forgiven, and that is a source of great gladness in his heart. You see, if we're not very, very careful as God's people, we will lose the joy of sins forgiven. We will lose that incredible joy that comes from knowing that God, God, who knows everything that we've ever done, every thought that we've ever had, every word that we've ever said, he's heard, God, God, has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. <laughs> so what if I've got a critic at work? God, God has forgiven me. No wonder he says, verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. Solomon's talked about those who loves silver and how they'll not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance with increase. That person who gets all of the joy in his life by how much money he's got in the bank is never satisfied. But that person who knows the joy of sins forgiven has something that the world and the devil can never take away. Amen? The joy, the blessedness of sins forgiven. As a result then of talking to God about his heart. God, you have filled my heart with gladness. And what is the source of that gladness? It is the knowledge, God, that you have forgiven me of my sins. It is the knowledge that your face still shines upon me. It is the knowledge of the blessedness that you have brought into my life. Therefore, he says, he claims the promise. I'll lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. David's son Solomon would live with an army protecting him. But most of David's life, he'd put his head down with a stone for his pillow. But he could go to sleep at night and did. Though his enemies were trying to kill him on every hand. Because he said, God, if you're sitting up, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I'll lie down in peace, knowing that, God, you're going to take care of me. And sometimes the, the best thing you can do with that person who's bringing stress into your life is go to bed. And have a good night's sleep. And not let them take it away from you. Just go to sleep. Trusting God. 
And then wake up in the morning and go back to Psalm 3 and do it all over again. Good morning, Lord. <laughs> I'm awake. I know you are. We got another day to deal with. But I, I know, Lord, you're going to get me through. I tell you, all of us have difficult days, stress-filled days, and a lot of times our stress, the constant kind, comes from the people that we're around, the things that they do, the things they say, their attitudes, their actions. We can't just leave it. We get up every morning knowing that it's there. We go to bed at night having to deal with it. And the psalmist then gives us a great passage to remember. O oh Lord, you have enlarged me in my distress. God, you could take them out. You could. You know them better than I do, God. <laughs> you could take them out. But he doesn't. He could deal with those difficulties. He could change our situation. He could. He could. But he doesn't. What he does is he changes you and he changes me. He enlarges us in our distress. You know, I've remarked many, many times over the course of my life how, how oftentimes the enemy, you know, will plan and plot and try to do things against God's people. And over and over again, God takes those plots and plans of the enemy and turns them around for our good. He even wrote it down in his book in case we ever were inclined to forget that all things are working together for good to them that love God. Doesn't mean that everything that ever happens to us is good, okay? It's not what that passage says. It says God works them for our good. If he doesn't do anything else with it, he can, if he doesn't do anything else with it, if, did you get that? Then Psalm 4 and 1 comes into play. He can enlarge us in our distress. Make you a better person, a bigger man, a bigger woman, a better person because of what you're going through. It's the last thing that your enemy wants to hear, isn't it? <laughs> but you know, it's not important that they hear it. It's important that you and I hear it. God has enlarged me in my distress. Maybe this morning you don't know the God that I'm talking about because you never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want you to know you can experience the joy that David described in Psalm 32 and 1. Blessed is a man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is a woman. Blessed is a person whose sins are forgiven. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have. And yet the Lord has laid our iniquity on Jesus Christ who took it to the cross and shed his precious blood so that the forgiveness of sin could be offered freely to you and to me. Have you claimed that offer of God's free forgiveness 
through the grace of Jesus Christ? Have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? If you have, have you followed him in baptism? You have a church home. We'd love to have you here. I don't know what's on your heart this morning. Maybe you're just, I brought up some bad stuff for you today. And I, I, I took that into advisement and I prayed about it. I said, you know, Lord, this may be the very last thing that people want to hear about when they come to church on Sunday is that person who's stressing them out. Already, while you're sitting there, you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow when you get to work. What's going to happen tomorrow when you get to school, get to class? Thou hast enlarged me in my distress. Let's stand together, please.